there's a really great information out there, but it's lacking artistic expression. And I think when you add artistry to the equation, that's when you actually hook people because you hook their emotions. So you're just like this mad genius. He's, he's <laughs> drawing backwards. Everything's so scale and perfect. And it's like, boom, done, you know? What, uh, why do you think there's a resistance to rehabbing the land, to rehabilitating it, and a preference for these high-tech solutions? Well, it's a matter of short-term profit versus long-term viability. You know, it's very hard to compete with the productivity of petrochemical fertilizers, herbicide, fungicide, right, insecticides. You know, in the short term, those types of systems can grow a lot of food. I'm not going to attest to how healthy that food is, say, compared to like organically grown food. Most people have heard of phytoestrogens. But did you know there are beneficial phytoandrogens that mimic and support testosterone and more? The top source of these is pine pollen. If you're looking for 100% natural hormonal support for men and women, you've got to try this. Right now, Lost Empire Herbs' best-selling pine pollen is available for one penny plus shipping and handling. Go to GeniusPollen.com to find out more and grab yourself a bag today. No hidden charges, no trial offer, no shenanigans. Just a low-cost way to try Lost Empire Herbs' top product for next to nothing. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. We've got a great guest, uh, Andrew Millison. He's an instructor of permaculture at Oregon State University. He's got a YouTube channel that uh, I think is just fantastic. In the channel, he's done some videos where he's traveled to different countries and met with people that are working on various you know, ideas and tasks in permaculture. He has this really like amazing setup, which I'll ask him to describe, where it looks like a transparent wall that he draws on and makes all these amazing figures and diagrams. And it's great to talk to him. So thanks for coming, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah. Well, if you would, tell me about some of your background. How did you get to uh, do your YouTube channel and how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, well, I mean, really, my main gig is I'm an instructor at Oregon State University and I'm into permaculture. And, you know, permaculture is basically sustainable land design, you know, different tools for land regeneration. And so I ended up at Oregon State University basically because the students were demanding that they had more instruction on topics like permaculture. So I ended up at OSU and I've been at OSU for since 2008. So it's been about 14 years. Mm -hmm. And what's happened over those 14 years is that I've developed this program. I've developed really, it's an online education program. And so that's basically how I could fund myself to start off was they didn't have money to actually they weren't looking to hire a permaculture instructor. They basically were like, well, if you can make your own way here, then you can have a program and you can teach classes. And so I started with online education 
And over time, I've built up this program now that's really successful. We have, you know, we've had thousands of students from all over the world, and it's given me the opportunity to collaborate with OSU and with all of their multimedia people to do stuff like use the light board, like you were talking about. And so I got really into media. I guess ultimately I'm, I'm a storyteller mm. and I like to share and express things that I think are really important, like permaculture and how to live sustainably and how to regenerate ecosystems and, you know, grow food in a you know beneficial way to the planet. So I saw the opportunity to really work with Oregon State University and really take advantage of their multimedia facilities. And, you know, they basically have allowed me to, you know, create content through OSU and then put it on YouTube through my own channels because I have a pretty wide distribution. You know, it all ends up coming back. It ends up kind of advertising the courses and stuff and, you know, becomes this sort of cycle of, support between me and OSU. And so, yeah, I mean, that's like a really short version of how I came to be in this position right now where I have this YouTube channel and I travel all over the world and I document different really crucial water projects, food projects, permaculture projects. And I'm able to, you know, translate those in what I feel is like an artistic way. So I think there's a lot of really great information out there, but it's lacking artistic expression. And I think when you add artistry to the equation, that's when you actually really hook people because you hook their emotions, you know, you hook their their interest, their inspiration. And so I kind of feel like what I do is like edutainment. You know, I try to make it entertaining. Yeah. Yeah. Like I saw your video where you talked about, I guess, different kinds of retention ponds and you know, you drew them on the on the board and mm-hmm. you, know, you could really see, oh, okay, that's how it looks. I mean, not that seeing ones on location or in a video, you know, just like a pond sitting there isn't informative, but the way you did the video is really informative. You know, why is it sloped this way? What do you put at the edge of the pond, et cetera? So I think it's, yeah. the stuff you do is really great and super informative. Thank you. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, when I was a kid, I used to write graffiti and stuff. And so I like had a lot of practice kind of drawing graphically on vertical surfaces. And and then, you know, I was trained, I've worked in a landscape architecture office and, you know, I was trained to do kind of landscape design type of stuff. And so I think that's sort of the basis for my graphics background to be able to, you know, draw these sort of like interesting looking diagrammatic, you know, kind of, it's almost like they're animated because, you know, you're watching the drawing get sped up. So sort of like animated diagrams of things like ponds and wastewater treatment systems and sustainable neighborhoods and all, you know, all kinds of other stuff that I've done there. You can see, you know, my YouTube channel, if you browse it. I'm sure that would be the next step is, you know, with all that technology, then you could animate it too and have things look like they're flowing and moving and all that stuff. Yeah, we've done a little bit of that because um, back in 2016, we threw a free intro introduction to permaculture course. Uh, It was like a massive open online course. So it was a big free course. We had 45,000 people take the course. And that's when the university bought that light board. And at that time, they actually had someone who did some animations with the light board. So there are some videos out there, not on my YouTube channel, but on Oregon State University one that actually they do sort of animate the illustrations. And that kind of takes it to another level, I think. Do you have to write backwards on that? Like, how does that light board work? 
Yeah, they just flip the image. There's when you're in the editing program, there's a feature called horizontal flip. So it's kind of funny because people think I'm writing backwards and, and I used to correct them. And now I just sort of let it go. I'm like, well, if you want to think I'm writing backwards, then that's fine. But that makes it, really, it even more amazing. you know. That, yeah, really- it makes people I'm like, oh, my God, he's writing backwards. Like, no, I'm not writing backwards. It's just a, it's just horizontal flip on the editing program. Most supplements are taken on faith and could take weeks or months to have an effect. Even supplements backed by scientific studies may or may not deliver those same benefits to you. But what if you could feel the results of what you took within just a few days? Lost Empire Herbs offers the highest quality, wild-harvested, non-irradiated pine pollen, and that can dramatically impact your hormones fast. Right now, you can grab it for one cent plus shipping and handling at GeniusPollen.com. I got you. I can still see, though, that you're practiced at it because things are the right dimensions and they don't, you know, you're not crowding stuff in the corner. And, you know, it looks like you've sat there and practiced what you're drawing for quite a while. So I guess, well, I've, yeah, I mean, I've diagrammed it out to scale. I mean, I actually like, it takes me a super long time to come up with those drawings and I have to, you know, to get everything like to scale on that surface the first time, you know, yeah, actually it's quite time intensive. And like, I had to think really hard to get everything to kind of fit in the way that it does. So you're just like this mad genius. He's, he's <laughs> drawing backwards. <laughs> Everything's just scale and perfect, and it's like, boom, done. You know. <laughs> well, we can end if if you if you got the wrong guy for the episode, you know, we can end it now if you want. If I'm, if I'm not as. <laughs> no, no, yeah. the the work you do is excellent. I, mean, I really, really appreciate it. How long does it take you to do one of those lightboard or whiteboard videos? Oh yeah, like probably about. It, it can depend because they really some are more complicated. Some I draw like three different screens worth. Like I'll draw a whole screen, then I'll erase it. And then I'll draw a whole screen. Then I'll erase it. Some of those can take up to like five hours maybe. But um, oh, wow. the ones where I only do like one screen's worth of illustration uh, usually take in the neighborhood of say two to three hours. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Well, so I guess turning to more serious matters, if you don't mind, you know, you probably have a lot more experience because you've traveled to a lot of these places, but um you know, the news and everything is saying that there there's likely to be a famine around the world because of what's going on. It just seems to me, just like on its face, that most nations really, they're not doing nearly what it takes to be to be sustainable with their own food, but yeah. not be, you know, like huge importers of grain and wheat and other stuff. Yeah. What do you see out there, especially now? What are the, what are the big challenges that are coming right now? Yeah, I mean, the biggest challenge that's kind of led us to such a state of instability is really land degradation. A re- the reason why a lot of places are food importing that were never really historically food importers. I mean, nowhere was really historically food importers because we didn't have globalization. We didn't have mass movement of goods across the planet. But a lot of places have lost their topsoil. The landscapes have lost the ability to hold water and store water, deforestation. When you have deforestation, then you actually change the rainfall patterns and you actually can, you know, when you have deforestation uh, across a wide swath of landscape, you, you enter into a drought flood cycle where you don't have regular rainfall because, you know, forests actually help to bring rainfall to the landscape. So you end up when it does rain, there's nothing to hold the water and you get this flood cycle. So a lot of places, well, the good news is that this 
the window that is opening right now is where people are really going to see the need for local production, local food production in places where we talk about supply chains being cut off. And the first step to really restoring local food production is land regeneration, reforestation, rehydration of the landscape, revegetation, fixing erosion problems. You know, people aren't going to be like, like we've been warning about this, me and my colleagues and people in the permaculture movement. I mean, we have been warning about the risks of globalization to the food supply for as long as it's been happening, basically. You know, I've been, I've been turned on to all this, this stuff since the early nineties. I was like, when I was a kid, I was like, oh my God, things are really unsustainable. You know, you say like, like, what if the fertilizers cut off? People are like, what do you mean? Like they, they, they couldn't wrap their minds around it. And now here we are, who's the biggest producer of fertilizer on the planet and the biggest producer of the materials that someone else would use to produce nitrogen fertilizer? It's Russia, yeah. yep. you know? So, you know, we've gotten ourselves, globalization has gotten us into this conundrum where it didn't matter that we had localized land degradation because people were importing food, basically. Well, that's stopping. Of course, in the poorest countries is is where it's going to hit first because those countries are at the end of the supply chain and have the least extra capital to buy the grain that is out there, you know? So, yeah. So, I mean, my only hope, and, you know, this is what I'm working towards, is that people can turn it around using permaculture because, I mean, it really is possible. I've shown this in my video work, a lot of the stuff I've shown in India, that in a very short period of time, you can turn around land degradation and restore water tables and kind of get agriculture back going. That that India series was amazing. There's like seven videos on various projects in India. And it was just, it was so cool and inspirational. I love that. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. And it's having impact. I was talking to this guy in Libya today, you know, they're having basically like environmental collapse due to, you know, long-term drought and just like poor land management. And he was telling me that he was showing my India videos to like the mayor of the village and the elders to show them, you know, what could happen in a short period of time to, to regenerate the landscape. So, I mean, stuff like that is like, it's spreading to all these corners of the world, you know, so to some degree, I'm just, I'm like the, um, the person who's just relaying the information of, of what's possible. And, you know, I think it is having a ripple effect out there. Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the uh, you know the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up and check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going. And I love coffee. Thank you. If the governments of the world actually listened to you and called you in and said, hey, help us. Um, at this point, I know it depends where, but 
what would you tell them are the first things that they need to do? Like if, if they were ready to go, they said, we've got, you know, X number of billion at our disposal, but we're ready yeah. to listen, Andrew. What do we do? What would yeah. you tell them to do? Yeah. Well, you know, all wealth comes from the land, right? I mean, ultimately, like the wealth of a nation is on its resources. Now, some places are, you know, you look at resources and we're talking about oil or you're talking about bauxite or, you know, iron ore or whatever. But like ultimately the food security and the food abundance of a, of a nation is ultimately rests on the wealth of the landscape. So I would say that we need a worldwide watershed rehabilitation project, right? The watersheds are actually the natural divisions of landscape. When you're restoring landscape back to its state of abundance, you're looking at the watershed level for how you're going to divide the land and what treatments you're going to do at what different elevations throughout the watershed. So I'd say to the government, hey, you know, we need to start at the top, the highest elevations of your nation. We need to start reforesting and we need to start working our way down. And by the time we get to the lowest elevations of your nation, then the riches will be restored, basically. So that's one thing. I mean, that's supporting humans, which is rebuilding water tables, rebuilding soil, you know, the Save Soil Movement, Sadhguru, I don't know if you're tuned into that. It's, they're, they're calling it the, the largest movement on the planet ever is the Save Soil Movement. And it's coming out of India. Yeah, this guy, Sadhguru, he just spent 100 days riding his motorcycle, meeting world leaders all throughout part of the world. It's it's a really, really huge thing. But, you know, I mean, that's that's a really good message, a really simple one. But, you know, I, I would I would say more like save the watersheds because... We need, you know, we need to restore landscapes for human consumption, like food and water, but also to create a healthy ecology over the planet. I mean, to have forests where you have, you know, species able to regenerate, you know, we need to basically create the Garden of Eden planet that we have the capacity to. And poverty, like when a land has reached a state of poverty, like the soils have washed away, the water's not soaking in, then the people are in poverty. I mean, it's simple. When you look at the poorest countries in the world, look at the state of their land. It's it's impoverished, you know, it's degraded. And how could people be wealthy in, in places like that? So yeah, that yeah, would like be I my, saw yeah. like in India, in some of the places I didn't realize that, you know, they may only have rain for a month or two. And then they literally can't live there. There's nothing. So they turn into migrant workers and suffer all kinds of abuse. I saw some of the places in India in the videos where they restored the land that people were actually able to live somewhere year round and have villages and have families and everything. So it was like the keystone to their existence. And India is actually better off than a lot of places. I mean, you know, look at Haiti, look at Somalia, you know, like look at just the some of the places where like you can't you don't even have a government cannot really you can't maintain a central government in a location if like you can't you don't have like basic food and water security you know so a lot of times when you yeah. look at you look at the places that are the most devastated in the world they're having the most political problems they're having the biggest wars or anything like that a lot of times that translates you look and you're like wow they have major resource issues. You know, on the other side, like look at Russia and Ukraine, you know, it's a battle over Ukraine is one of the most fertile areas on the planet. You know, it's a very great prize for anybody to control. 
Yeah, if they utilize it properly, right? Yeah. 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 So would you say retaining water is the number one thing that uh, every nation in the world should look to first to rebuild their, their agriculture? Well, the only thing I would say is there's also nations that they have plenty of water, like places that are really like wet tropical regions. And so there's other water management strategies that you would employ for places that are very wet, that you can make those places highly productive. So I did a whole video. I went down to, I don't know if you saw the one I went down to Mexico City. and oh, the um, Chiampas area? Yeah, the Chiampas. Yeah. So there, I would say it's the opposite. It's not a matter of water quantity. It's, you know, more a matter of water quality, actually, you know, in that type of agricultural system. So, you know, I would say instead of saying we need to rehydrate all landscapes, I would say we need to have, you know, sustainable, regenerative water management for all landscapes. So in some instances, it means in most instances, it's landscape rehydration. But in a lot of places, it's more about keeping water clean so it can be used and not be so polluted that, you know, cause you can have all this water and if it's all polluted, then you really don't have the, the right. resource that you think you do. Maybe this is a silly question, but is it possible to, I mean, for people to grow enough food using, let's say shipping containers or growing stuff indoors, or does it really need to be an activity where you have, you know, acres and acres and kilometers of, of arable land? in order to sustain a people. Yeah. I mean, the thing about, well, okay. First off, I would say in an urban area, you can definitely do like high density food production, right? There's a lot of high density food production systems, vertical growing, rooftop growing. It's done all over the world in, you know, urban locations. But I think the idea of like high rise farms, it's actually a very energy intensive activity. And when you look at the amount of energy spent to sort of simulate the conditions of outside versus just growing things outside. I think that the energy footprint a lot of, of a lot of those systems actually, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't pencil out. That's my feeling about a lot of these more kind of high-tech, you know, indoor farming solutions, mm. especially if you're providing extra sunlight. I mean, I just I know from living in Oregon, I know about like the indoor cannabis industry. And I mean, it's a ridiculous ridiculous amount of energy consumed to simulate sunlight, you know? So as soon as you get to simulating sunlight, you get into like major water distribution over really high elevations. You get into like different types of soil mediums or hydroponics and stuff. Then you're adding, you have all these different amendments that you're adding and they have to be sourced somewhere. They have to be transported somewhere. Like it's very expensive to simulate the sun soil and rain you know okay so I'm, maybe I'm, I'm not a silly like super, question, I mean, yeah well no it's not no I mean, it, it's it's not a silly question it's a valid question because you see stuff all over like a lot of people get sort of swept away with the technological solutions but i would say firstly we should look at the biological solutions the biological solutions are always going to be the less expensive solutions and the ones that can actually replicate themselves. Like if you're, if you're like, okay, what is, you know, there's all these um, carbon capture machines, right? And I'm just like, when I see these carbon capture machines, I mean, I get, I get mad and I get upset because I'm like, Hey, you know what, a, you know what the best carbon capture machine ever made is? It's a tree. And when you plant a tree, 
And, and you plant you so that's it's a carbon capture machine that actually replicates itself because that tree will make seeds and it will create more trees and it'll provide habitat for birds and it will shade the ground and it will slow the water and it will create organic material to help to replenish the soil and it will create wood and it creates flowers and it can create medicines you know all the different products of a tree so you know i really think mm -hmm. that it's like it's the least amount of energy with the greatest amount of of effect to actually look towards these biological self-replicating biological systems so you know like the tree being a great example for carbon capture yeah. yeah, no, it makes it makes a lot of sense. What? Uh, why do you think there's a resistance to rehabbing the land, to rehabilitating it, and a preference for these high tech solutions? Well, it's it's a matter of short term profit versus long term viability. So you know, it's very hard to compete with the productivity of petrochemical fertilizers, herbicide, fungicide right? Insecticides, you know, in the short term, those types of systems can grow a lot of food. You know, I, I, I'm not going to attest to how healthy that food is, say, compared to like organically grown food in nutrient-rich soil. But, you know, the short-term profit of those systems and the short-term productivity is very high. But, you know, the, like we're now we're seeing with the <coughs> supply chains of the world breaking down, basically, we are seeing the cost of being reliant on inputs like nitrogen fertilizer that are produced an ocean away, right? It's actually not a stable system. So people prefer that because people are looking towards short-term profit and not long-term stability. Yeah. How powerful is uh, permaculture? I mean, you know, if I gave you like some desert should hold, but you know, a depleted area of land that just well, and you had to do everything from scratch. Would you be able to get it to a point? Do you think where you don't need to bring in outside fertilizer? You, you know, are most landscapes, if they're done properly, could they be self-sustaining, or will they always need external inputs? I mean, we'll just think about most places. Like we only even had external inputs, you know, starting about. 70 years ago or so, like after World War II, the war industry basically turned into the, you know, fertilizer industry and all that. So, I mean, anywhere in the world that people lived, you can see examples of how they lived there without external inputs pre-industrialization, you know? So just, you know, basically a hundred years ago, the vast majority of the world was living wherever they were living without external inputs. So, but then, you know, you get into like the harshest landscapes in the world, right? The most arid landscapes in the world, the windiest, the places that have the least amount of soil, you know, I mean, the it's been proven in many locations, the power of permaculture and land regeneration. Like for instance, like some of the stuff that um, Jeff Lawton's been doing in Dead Sea River Valley, you know, so that's one of the, you know, one of the drier locations in the world. I mean, I did a bunch of work over in the Western desert of Egypt, although they have this ancient aquifer that they're pulling water from. So, you know, I mean, there's some areas like the Sahara desert where you literally get zero rainfall that if you don't have like people, just, but people didn't live there. Like anywhere that people have historically lived and had a civilization that was basically producing what they needed, those locations theoretically can be brought back to a state of abundance if the land has not been so degraded 
that it is beyond repair. There are places in the world where erosion has happened so significantly, the climate has been so altered by deforestation and land degradation, so the rains no longer come. There are places that are beyond repair, but I would say, you know, the vast landscapes of the world are not. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. What, what what are some of the hardest inputs to replace, you know, when you do permaculture on a site? Is the water the most easy or difficult? Is the fertilizer, you know, what, what kind of inputs are tough? Yeah. Well, I mean, I would say that water is actually easy because, you know, as long as you're still getting regular rainfall, shaping the land to hold water and soak it into the ground instead of shedding it is pretty basic. Like you can kind of do that with a shovel, you know, on a small scale, you can do it with an excavator or backhoe on a large scale, but there's lots of examples. Like my friend, uh, Neil Spackman, he's got this great project he did in Saudi Arabia where they took an area that got between zero and two inches of rainfall a year. And they sculpted the land, they terraformed the land to collect and soak in the water. And they were able to establish trees you know, within just a few years. So I think water is actually one of the easier things. I think the harder thing is to get regionally adapted plant and seed varieties, right? That actually have been bred in the location. And, and the reason why that's difficult is because so much of that has been lost, right? So pre-industrial agriculture, every region had its own specific variety of seed and fruit tree that was adapted to the specifics of that climate. The, the fruit trees bloomed at the right time so they wouldn't get the late frost or the seeds were, you know, of this squash plant could, you know, handle the particular insect that was a predator insect there on that location. But then what, what industrial agriculture did is it, it reduced the biodiversity of, of agricultural plants to a very narrow window. And so like, you know, you go back to some region here, you're going to try to restore, you know, some area back to a, a state of like land abundance. Right. And, you know, getting the water in the ground is great, but then you're like, like, wow, we need to get the biological material, the seeds and everything that are locally adapted. So a lot of, in a lot of terms, that's been lost. And you have to search around the world to other similar climates to find the plant material that is adapted to that place that is resistant to the pests in that place that is, is adapted to the particular weather conditions in that location. So I would say that was that is more of a challenge than the water. So what, in certain areas... Do people not even know what native plants would be able to grow there or just none exist because it's been so depleted? Yeah. I mean, that's basically the case is you have places that, you know, like, let's say industrial agriculture, like, let's say, you know, you're down in the Caribbean or something or, you know, where people have been growing sugarcane, you know, for a commodity on some lands for years and years and years and years. And then... You know, if that goes away, sometimes things happen like the business folds or something like that. And all of a sudden you're like, wow, like where who still has the seeds that we used to grow in this place, you know, or or uh, like like look at Hawaii or something. Right. Well, Hawaii, first off, Hawaii had the big uh, on Maui, the big A and B sugar company that basically controlled practically most of the island that folded, you know, so suddenly like sometimes these big industrial export economies fail for various reasons and suddenly 
you know, you're kind of left with like, wow, what, where are the native plants? Hawaii has been so impacted by invasive species, for instance, that there's just like, you know, it's hard to find the remnants of, of native species there, which, you know, a lot of times the natives are some of the best species to grow there, you know, to regenerate the landscape. But, you know, really for agricultural, particularly agricultural, like animal varieties, right? Like what is the best, you know, what's the best goat variety? that can withstand the heat and the cold in the highlands of Kenya, you know, like it, does that still exist? Is someone still breeding the goats that are adapted to this particular area? You know, like I, I spent time with the Hopi in Arizona, right. Who have the, the toughest corn on the planet. This corn is grown at 6,000 feet dry farmed on these mesas here. There's no irrigation right? The corn's planted like a foot deep in these, these, like you plant like 10 seeds together and it grows these little bushes of corn, right? Those seeds have adapted over time for those conditions. Once those seeds are gone, it, you can't just like snap to it and readapt to an area, such specific conditions, you know? So luckily in places like that, people have been keeping their seeds alive for all this time, but there's a lot of places in the world where those very specific special seed varieties for that location have been lost. And that's a very mm. difficult thing to, to come to get back once you lose it. it or impossible in many cases. Does anyone, um, I guess it was just for like personal interest, but does anyone yeah. document what you're talking about before an area is developed? You know, what animals were there, what plants were there, what other things were there that are now unseen? Well, I mean, you know, interestingly, there's like the, what's the, like the world seed vault in Svalbard, Norway, that they've been collecting seed from all over the world, you know, to freeze it. Um, of course, now it's starting to, to, with, with warming, that area has actually started to a thaw and it's creating flooding in the seed vault, which is really bad news. But, you know, there's, I mean, it, it's the kind of thing that happens later, like when, colonization happened, I think like agricultural colonization, right? When like sugarcane spread through Latin America, America, for instance, when uh, palm oil palms spread through Southeast Asia, you know, these are like these major commodity crops that displaced the, you know, local food systems, right? When this happens, people don't, I mean, the people that are the industrialists that are coming in, that are transforming the landscape to serve a particular, you know, kind of a monoculture product, they're not typically like, hey, wait, let's take a minute and let's make sure that we keep all of the traditional seed varieties alive. You know, usually they're pretty yeah. focused on profit and stuff. And so, I mean, there's a lot of groups around the world that are doing this. I mean, Vendana Shiva, I mean, she's like the Indian seed activist who's been really big and restoring the, you know, many, many of the different native varieties. There's, there's activists all over the world, but it's more like activists working to do this in the face of monoculture industrialization. So it's, it's really, it's really tricky. Interestingly, I heard that the first withdrawal from the, the seed bank in Svalbard, Norway was after, I guess, the Syrian civil war. I don't know if it's even still going. I'm sure there's a lot of rough. But basically, in Syria, they went to the seed bank and withdrew some seeds that were had been lost during the war. Anytime you have a war like that, oh, you have wow. a complete disruption in the in the you know survival system and the this because seeds, it's like it's like you got to keep growing them or they go away. You know, mm. 
Yeah. Does it seem, uh, I don't know if you call it coincidental, but does it seem like the right plants are located next to wherever people live in the world? You know, um, plants that have medicinal herbs in them that help people with common ailments, et cetera. Does it seem like that is the case or is that just, you know? Well, yeah, but it's kind of like, it's kind, it's kind of the case by design, right? Because what would happen is you had people and you had their villages and stuff, right? Like this is back before when people were living on the land and then the people would go and they would gather the fruits or the herbs that they needed from the landscape and they'd bring them back in to the village area. And then a lot of times a little bit of seed would drop, you know, or the like, like take uh, the apple, right? For an example, the apple was, you know, native to Kazakhstan, right? Alma-Ata, the capital city of Kazakhstan is that translates to mother of apples, right? So they had these wild apple forests, but the people were living there and they would go out and they would collect the apples that were like the best apples. And then they'd bring those apples back to the village and then the seeds from those apples would be the ones that would then germinate closer in to the center of the village. Now, ap- apples are a-, a tricky example because they don't typically grow true to seed. But, you know, when someone goes and harvests medicinal herbs from their landscape and they bring them back, a lot of times the seed ends up close to the village. So just over time, naturally, the plants that people used ended up growing close into where people were because they were bringing them in and they were bringing the genetic material in oh i just wondered naturally if um if that occurs it just seems like the right plants are next to wherever people live in the world or at least historically were they or does anyone yeah. know yeah well i mean it took a lot of time like when we think of the right plants like all of the cultivated plants that we eat i mean wheat corn you know tomatoes potatoes i mean all of those things were adapted over thousands of years by people selecting the best. You know, they're like, oh, wow, let's select wheat from this really good stalk right here that has bigger kernels. Oh, let's replant these, you know, and that happening over and over and over and over again. Like, oh, wow, look at this, this peach right here, this, you know, particular branch of this peach tree called a sport, right? Like, wow, the peaches on this particular branch are like way bigger. Hey, let's take these ones and replant them. And so that just kept happening and happening and happening. And so, you know, that's kind of how our food plants really developed into what they are today. So the wild ancestors of the food plants that we eat now were actually really like not, you know, it was not the big juicy, juicy ear of corn that you're used to. That wasn't just growing in the wild. That was actually yeah. like bred and selected for over many, many generations. Yeah, I've heard about that. Uh, like spinach is a lot sweeter and more palatable, and mm-hmm. you know, a lot of fruits and vegetables have been changed dramatically. Yeah, by the way people raise them and selected yeah. now. Yeah, sure. So, what um within permaculture are there any? I don't know. Really, is it just come down to basics to be able to restore these landscapes, or are there any new or exotic methods that seem to be working better? Yeah, you know, you know, it's interesting. There's like, like technology is providing opportunities. Like, for instance, uh, I saw this thing where, you know, people are basically planting trees with drones, you know, so I mean, I mean, I think that there, we can leverage some of these technologies, like, like, if you think about uh, uh, some, some of the suggested methods for large scale landscape regeneration, there was this guy, this Japanese agriculture philosopher 
named Masanobu Fukuoka. And he wrote this whole book about how he felt like the way to re-green the deserts of the world was actually to just get all different kinds of seeds and fly up in an airplane and just to, to put the seeds in like a, a clay ball mixed with manure, right? So you make a little ball that has the seeds embedded in it and you go up in an airplane and you just drop these balls all over the landscape with all different tree seeds and all different kinds of plants. And then it might not rain for a long time, but that clay ball just sits there protecting the seed from animals and stuff. And then when it rains, the clay melts. There's a little bit of manure mixed in for fertilizer. The seed germinates. And then, you know, that's how you kind of get this time release of uh, all these plants. And so, you know, that was an idea he had quite a ways, but then I've seen recently like people talking about using drones for that. And if you think about like how a drone, like the different types of terrain that a drone could reach for reforestation that people can't reach. I mean, the logistics of getting people up on these, you know, high mountain ridges and, and steep areas and remote areas. So I think there's like a lot of technological application and, and also GIS, like to really see like with GIS, you can you know, geographic information systems, you can really like, you can really nail down what, like where you have your gentle south facing slopes that are going to be good microclimate for a particular species that you're trying to plant, you know, so I feel like a lot of our information technology, a lot of our, um, like drone technology and stuff like that are really, really primed for massive scale land regeneration. That doesn't involve like boots on the ground everywhere. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. You're right. They can get to places where people can't go. They could even see the the density of what needs to be planted and 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 yeah. what from overhead perspective the yeah. things we planted, let's say, more evenly or spaced properly, et cetera. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of AI applications in there as well. Like just what you mentioned, like, oh, like plant density, you know, you can you could get all of this GIS data and you could be like, okay you know, I'm looking at the state of Oregon. Okay. I'm looking at like South facing slopes between two and 3000 feet elevation with a, you know, that are more gentle than a 30% slope with this particular soil type, you know, and like, you could probably like plug those in and AI could tell you, Oh, here's the locations you're looking like, Oh, okay. You know, I mean, so I think that for land regeneration, you know, I'm all for like using the tools available and leveraging the technology to do things at a more massive scale than we can do otherwise. But on the flip side, I want to say you saw my India videos. I mean, when you have a lot of people out there, you know, the Pani Foundation, they have their water cup competition where they have um, all these villages competing to see who can install the most amount of water harvesting structures in a 45 day period. And I mean, there's a lot of people in India, so you got a lot of labor. I mean, it was when just they manpower. Yeah. They were amazing what they did. Yeah. So I'm just saying on the other, on the flip side of the technology is just human mm. power, you know, which a mm. lot of, some places have that. And a lot of places also don't have the demographics where they can support that kind of human power. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, they're not farmers. They're just living yeah. in, let's say a house, but they are worried about food security going forward. Is there anything they can do to just dip their toe in just to get started to do something? What, what would well, be your recommendation? Oh, man. I mean, just urban permaculture. Permaculture has methods and systems for really high density food, water production. You should see my place. My place is crazy. My place is a third of an acre <laughs> and it's like 
packed. I have, I have videos in my place. It's packed gardens, fruit trees, food plants, water systems, berries, you know, everything. I mean, and and I I know I've, I've visited lots of these places. I've seen such high dense. It's acknowledged that garden agriculture is actually far more productive than like field-based agriculture. Right. Okay. But it's, but it's more labor intensive. Like, like it's very, you can grow a lot more food on a small area if you're actually intensively managing it than can be grown on a big field, you know, that's managed by a tractor, right? Like the yield Mm. per per area is very high when you're actually really hands-on with it. So even like, I mean, I've seen spectacular designs for like apartment balconies, where they have potted plants stacked vertically that are covering and you've got vining plants and you're like, like you can actually grow a substantial Mm. portion of food and herbs, you know, and some of your culinary herbs and all that kind of thing on an apartment balcony. So that's one of the places where permaculture really shines because like we teach you how to go through the sort of process, the design process by which you would do that you could like maximize your product maximize your productivity and habitat and all these other benefits as well yeah do you still can people still get access to courses that you've created through oregon state or online or i guess yeah what are what are some references or uh, resource material for people listening yeah i mean right now permaculturedesign.oregonstate.edu will take you to our main website which has we have lots of different courses we offer online you know, we have paid courses, we have courses for credit, like for enrolled college students, we have non-credit, you know, continuing education courses, and we have hundreds of people go through those courses every year. And then like, I just put, I just put out a ton of free content on YouTube. I mean, there's like, if you just like watched all the videos in my YouTube channel, you would have a fairly, you know, rounded out understanding of a lot of this stuff. So because I'm, you know, I'm all about like, getting this information out there. I mean, as far as I can see, I, you know, I, from, from, from where I was in like the early nineties and then, you know, why do all this stuff? Like, like if you would have told me that our civilization would still be relatively intact in 2022, I would have been flabbergasted. No, that's not good news. <laughs> I, I would have been like, what are you talking about? I was like, we're going to be hunting squirrels by 2022. It's going to be like Mad Max, you know? So, wow. So I'm just saying like my perspective is like, hey, like we need to get our stuff together here, you know, because Mm. I mean, I mean, just supply chain, you know, look at what's happening now. Like it's now a lot of the stuff we were talking about, it's going down. Supply chains are disrupted, you know, climate extremes are here, you know, like we've entered into wacky world and the very best thing you can do to counter the the emotional stress and the actual physical stress of that is to produce as much as you can as close to where you are as possible. It'll ease your mind and it eases your wallet and you provide healthy food for yourself and your family. So, you know, permaculture is like has always has been and like continues to be the solution for the craziness of the world, in my opinion. Yeah. What's what's the toughest thing that you've seen either you or other people have had to deal with when working on permaculture systems, is it just because it's like really hard work or is it tiring or what, you know, what is it that that stops people or makes it very difficult for them? Well, I mean, for a lot of people, I think there's just a, like the ease of going to the store 
and you're like, why should I grow food when, you know, it's cheaper for me to just go to the store and buy food, right? Mm. And like in, in a country like the United States, where we actually have really relatively cheap food, I mean, I understand, you know, I guess for me, like my permaculture system is like a hobby. I mean, not, not such a hobby, but it's like, I can afford to buy food. Like I'm not a, I'm not a subsistence farmer, you know? And so I think that the, the, the biggest struggle is more of a psychological struggle than a physical struggle. And so, you know, it's, that's why a lot of my focus has been outside the United States because the uptake of this of these types of systems in places that actually are more like at the subsistence level where when you increase someone's food production when you increase their water security when you increase their biodiversity you're actually directly increasing their quality of life so it's kind of like you know i have a higher quality of life because i do gardening and have chickens and all these things. And I have beehives and everything. And like, like for me, like it's a higher, but I can't convince someone that that's like going to be fun for them, you know? So I think that the human will is the hardest nut to crack in this whole thing. Mm, okay. Well, very good. Um, oh, actually one more question I want to ask you, just kind of sure. uh, one of those filler questions, but would of all the places you've traveled and all the permaculture systems you've seen, which one like amazed you the most? I mean, what was it about it that like, you're like, wow, it's so cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've got to say that the Chinampas of Mexico city is just one of the most spectacular ancient permaculture systems I've ever seen. Now I'm attaching the word permaculture to it. Cause that's just the easy way to, to describe it. But of course the Aztecs or the pre Aztecs that built that system didn't, you know, they, they, they had their own language of, with which they described what they were doing. But, um, you know, in the heart of Mexico city, you should watch this video. I mean, people listening and it's, it's astounding in the heart of Mexico city, which used to be a giant lake, right? It was like a late born agriculture system. So they basically built these floating islands that took root in this shallow lake and they scooped all the lake mud and they built up these little peninsulas and islands that rose up above the level of the lake and they would plant their crops there. And then they planted trees to anchor those islands in. And eventually over time, they built this network of this maze of canals. So it's like this interweaving of canals and then little peninsulas where when you plant your food plants on the land, the water level is close enough that the roots can pretty much just access the water that's below the surface there for they can raise fish in the water areas. And then for fertility, they just scoop the muck out of the lake. So it's like there's always constantly renewed fertility because the, this lake bed has enough Basically, they said that there's a thousand years left of fertility left in this lake bed. I mean, it's just this, you know, it's a lake in the in in like like Mexico City surrounded by mountains. So it's like all these mountains, all the water had drained down for thousands, thousands, thousands of years. There's no outlet to the sea. So it just all of the nutrients just settled in this lake bottom. Then the Spaniards came and after the Tenochtitlan, this the capital, the Aztecs was conquered back in, what was it, like 1542 or something like that. I can't remember exactly. I have it in the video. They started paving over and building Mexico City. And so now Mexico City, a city of 22 million people, 
is actually built over a giant lake bed. But we went and visited, made this video of this one area called Xochimilco, which is the, it's like the last area that the old Aztec system with these canals and islands is still there. I mean, it's so fertile. It's so beautiful. There's this integration of trees and agriculture, aquatic species. And like the, the project I visited, the um, Ar- Arcatiera project is doing like this really incredible work there, you know, creating all these organic systems and doing a lot of like agroforestry and integration of trees in with agriculture and, and ecotourism. So that, I mean, that is just one of the coolest places I've, I've ever been in my life. And, and we have like a 17 minute long, really well-made video that you can see to, to kind of sink in. I made it with Oregon State University. So usually I do a lot of the filming, but I actually had a couple OSU professional videographer people come with me. And so I didn't have to do the filming and they just did, and they did the editing too. So they just did this brilliant job with the cinematography and everything like that to, to really represent this this place. And I do a lot of drawing on the board, like we were talking about as well to kind of explain mm-hmm. the systems. So yeah, that's a really, that's probably like one of my favorite, you know, permaculture sites on the planet that I've been to. Excellent. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, to close out again, can you just restate a few resources for listeners? Yeah. So first off my YouTube channel, it's just Andrew Millison, A-N-D-R-E-W-M-I-L-L-I-S-O-N. Just go to YouTube, type my name in. My main Oregon State University site is just permaculturedesign.oregonstate.edu. That's permaculture is P-E-R-M-A-C-U-L-T-U-R-E, permaculturedesign.oregonstate.edu. And that'll pretty much like, that's pretty much a portal to all of my OSU stuff. Oh, and then I have, I have my personal website, it's just andrewmillison.com. And that's where I just kind of have like, you can just get to the, I do site design for clients as well. I design people's properties, do all kinds of stuff like that. So you can see some of my other work. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Andrew, thanks so much for coming. Like I said, your channel is awesome. It's a great resource. I encourage people to watch it big time. And thanks for all you do. Right on. Thanks. Great talking to you. Remember before you go to grab your one penny bag of pine pollen for all the amazing all natural hormonal support that men and women the world over are raving about. Try it out and see how it works for you. All you have to do is head to GeniusPollen.com to grab your bag today. Within days, you may be able to notice greater energy, more focus, added recovery, and more. Again, please visit GeniusPollen.com to learn more now. Thank you. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.